about the Bengals. Walk like an Egyptian. And for those of you who will be singing that all afternoon, you're welcome in advance for that. Just wanted to plant that thought in your mind. I'm not going to play it this morning. Didn't ask the worship team to lead us in that to kick off the series. If you're a history buff, you may not think about the Bengals, but you may think about the Great Pyramid of Giza. Just show of hands, anybody visited the pyramid? Actually been there? One, one person that I see in the whole room. Uh, an amazing place to go. I have not been there. There are seven wonders of the ancient world, and this is the only one still standing. For 3,800 years, it was the tallest man-made structure on earth, which is a pretty good run, almost 4,000 years as the tallest building on earth. Just this last week, I read that scientists discovered a new chamber inside it, and they're investigating with radar and sonar and all of these things to try to figure out what's going on there. I know that in popular media, sometimes we connect the Hebrew slaves with the building of the pyramids, and that may be in your brain, maybe from a a commercial or a movie, or it may be in your brain from a, a picture in a children's Sunday school class, but I just want you to understand that the pyramid... When Jacob and his family got to Egypt, had been around for hundreds, plural, of years, the Great Pyramid in Giza. When Jacob and his family went down to Egypt, they saw it. They didn't build it generations later, but they saw it, and it had already been there for quite a long time, which is amazing to think when we live in a country where not many things have been around for hundreds of years, that they went down all those many, many centuries ago, and they saw it built And it had been built for hundreds of years when they got there. On the note of popular media, a lot of us think about movies that we've seen. Maybe uh, Cecil DeMille's The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Maybe you think about The the, uh, Prince of Egypt. And uh, maybe you think about Exodus, Gods and Kings. How many of you have seen one of the, the movies about the Exodus? So a lot of us have seen those. And I'll just sort of say up front, you know, the movies all have some sort of entertainment value. And the movies all generally kind of follow some of what we see in the book of Exodus. But the movies all add details. And they add plot lines. And they add things that are not necessarily in the Bible. And so sometimes it's hard for you and I to sort out in our brain what we think we know about the Bible. What we think we know about the Bible because we've seen it in a movie. And what we've actually read in the scriptures. And so that's our goal in this series is to go back to the scriptures and to see what the Word of God says. It's worth pointing out that all the popular movies based on the Exodus focus on the human characters rather than on God and His character. And that's where they all fall short. All of the, the movies or the plays or the things that you've seen on TV that tell the story of the Exodus, they all focus on the human players in the drama rather than on God who stands behind all of it. And when you read the book of Exodus, when you read it from the Scriptures, Moses is important, and Pharaoh is important, and Aaron's in there, and Miriam's in there, and the slaves are in there. All these people are important. But the main character that you need to concern yourself with is God. And so throughout this series, as we look at this story, an amazing story, a fantastic story, our focus week in and week out is going to be on God and His character. A few more details before we read it and jump in. The word Exodus is a Greek word, and all it means is exit or departure. So if you fast forward to Exodus 19, you'll read a verse where they've come out of Egypt, the Exodus has already happened, and they look back on it and they talk about the people going out from the land. 
And it was written in Hebrew, but when that Hebrew was translated into Greek, the word that they used in Greek was exodus. It's just a going out. When the book was written, it really wasn't given a title, like we sort of refer to it today as Exodus, but because the book is about the people going out, and you see this word here in chapter 19, that just sort of became the title that stuck. One last interesting detail. In Hebrew, the book of Exodus begins with the word and. That's how the whole book starts. And the opening word establishes a link between the previous story and Genesis. So some of you are reading that right now, and you feel like you are owed some points in sixth grade English for all those sentences that you started with and, and you lost points, and you feel like, hey, if Moses can start a sentence with and, I ought to be able to start a sentence with and, but that's not the way it works. Nobody's getting points back, and if you're in middle school now or high school, don't start a sentence with and. But in this book, Moses did it. The very first word in the story is and, and it's Moses' way of saying, this is not like a whole brand new fairy tale. This is not just something we're pulling out of the thin air. This is something that started back in the book of Genesis, which means if you're going to make sense of the book of Exodus in the story, you've got to reckon with this and. It's the continuation of an ongoing story, and this morning we're going to try to see some of those connections and see some of the things that tie the storyline over from Genesis to Exodus. The book starts with and. If you're looking at the, the first few verses in Exodus, I'll just point out a couple of, of other interesting things. You'll notice that Genesis ends with Joseph dying. Genesis fifty twenty six says Joseph died. And you see the same idea in our passage in Exodus 1, 6. Joseph died. So there's a connection right there. And then you may also be interested to know that the very first words, and these are the names of the sons of Israel, is an exact quotation from Genesis chapter 46. Moses wrote them and he just pulled the phrase out of Genesis 46. He uses it to start off the book of Exodus. And he's saying this is one story. And if you're going to understand the story of the Exodus, you've got to have some foundational knowledge of the book of Genesis. Let me give you the big idea, and then we're going to read the passage. The big idea is really simple. The God of the Exodus is a promise-keeping God. And as we look at this introductory paragraph, we're going to see the promises were made in Genesis, and God is beginning, or we should rather say continuing, to keep these promises here in the book of Exodus. God makes promises to his people, and he keeps promises to his people. So look at the text in, the, uh, in your Bible, and we're going to read Exodus 1, 1 down to verse 7. Short passage this week. The Word of God says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we stop this morning to thank you for the scriptures, to thank you for this one story of redemption that begins in Genesis and 
culminates in the book of Revelation. And Father, as we make a pit stop for the next five months in the book of Exodus, we pray that we would see truth about ourselves as we think about these human characters, but most of all, we pray that we would see truth about you and that we would allow your word to shape our thoughts about who you are and what you're like. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as Americans, I think we should just start off. I've given you the big idea that says God is a promise-keeping God. Let's just start off and acknowledge corporately. I'm not picking on you individually. I'm just talking about us corporately. We have a hard time when it comes to the truth, right? I mean, we'd like to say, well, I tell the truth to people. But you know as well as I do that when you really want someone to believe you, you don't just tell them something, but you tell them something and you add a promise to it. The very act of promising sort of tells on us, right? Like, I'm promising you. I'm really, really telling you the truth. And if that's not enough to convey your point, maybe you swear. Look, I swear that this is the truth. Or I swear that I'm going to do it. And if you really want to make a point, you swear by something. Many people in our culture will say, well, I swear to God. Or many people say, well, I swear on my mother's grave. Or we add some sort of silly thing to the end of it to just say, I'm really, really telling you the truth right now. If you're called to testify in a court of law, they'll more than likely have you at some point stand up in the, the, the bench or up on the front on the platform and you raise your hand and you say, I promise or I swear I'm taking an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why don't we make people do that? It's because we know if we don't put them under oath, they feel like they have a little bit of wiggle room, right? A little bit of leeway. Like, when in your life is it okay not to tell the truth? But we sort of put these people on the spot and we say, look, we want the truth and the whole truth, nothing but the truth. You know as well as I do that all of this starts when you are a child. It starts young. If you go down and work a, uh, a Sunday in our toddler room or maybe in our pre-kindergarten room, you'll see little kids. My son's already learned how to do it, making a pinky promise. Uh, this is serious now. Because my pinky's up, and we're going to lock pinkies, and this is the real deal. And little children say things like, maybe you said this when you were younger, I cross my heart, I hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, I'm telling you the truth. This is for real. But then you always have an out if you just take your two fingers here and cross them, put it behind your back. We sort of feel like, well, that's, that means you can lie, basically. You may not describe it that way, but we feel like, well, my fingers were crossed and they were behind my back, so I now get to lie. And we laugh at children for doing these things, but we also know that this reaches the highest level of society in the United States, right? Like, we deal with this with our government leaders all the time. When it comes to campaigns and it comes to investigations and it comes to this and that, I don't care which party you're in, at some point you're going to get caught lying. And you're going to sort of backpedal and say, well, I said this, but that's not really what I meant. Or I didn't really understand the question. Or then there's the, always the classic, I just don't remember. I just don't remember. Look, all of those examples I mentioned just to say as human beings in our culture, in our society, we have a serious problem when it comes to telling the truth and keeping our word. And there's always a danger that you allow who we are and you allow what our culture is like to define your idea of God. And one of the things that the book of Exodus is challenging right out of the gate 
is this concept of the truth, of keeping your word. And the book of Exodus is reminding us with these verses that may seem kind of boring, like you're thinking about all the exciting stuff coming in the book of Exodus, and you're like, we've got to spend a whole week talking about a list of names and talking about the word and at the beginning and talking about these people died. I mean, really, a whole week on that. But we've got to start off with who God is. And the book of Exodus is reminding us right out of the gate that God is a God who makes promises to his people, and he always keeps those promises. So we'll start with this simple question. What do these verses teach me about the promise-keeping God of the book of Exodus? Well, if you go back to Genesis, we'd say this. In the book of Genesis, we find God making several promises to a man named Abraham. He's actually Abram when we meet him, but his name becomes Abraham, and that's part of the promises that God makes to him. The promises really center on a couple of things. There's a promise to Abraham about having land, We'll talk about that later in the series. There's a promise to Abraham about you will be a blessing to the entire world, and we'll sort of talk about that as we go through the book of Exodus. This morning, I want you to think about the fact that one of the things God promised to Abraham was children. To this elderly man married to a barren woman, the Lord, Yahweh, shows up, and he starts making promises, and one of the things he promises is you will have children. And I'll just get specific here with what the promises sort of drive at. You can look the verses up on your own. Genesis 12, God says, To the man who has no kids, you will be a great nation. Abraham looks around and he says, I don't have any kids at all, but here's this God who I've never met before. He just appears to me and he tells me, somehow I'm going to be turned into a great nation. Nation. Great nations have lots of people. I'm old, my wife is barren, and we have no kids. You fast forward a little bit in Genesis, Genesis 15. God comes back and he's talking to Abram, Abraham and he takes him out of his tent and he says, look up at the sky, count the stars. You will have more offspring, more children, more grandchildren, more great-grandchildren. There will be more people in your family than the stars in the sky. That's a lot. You fast forward a little bit more into Genesis 17. The Bible says that God shows up and he says, you are going to be the father of a multitude of nations and you will be exceedingly fruitful. And just think about how those promises fell on a man who was advanced in years and whose wife had never been able to have children. You're going to be a great nation. You'll have more children and offspring than the stars in the sky. You're going to be a father of a multitude of nations and be exceedingly fruitful. Where do we pick up the story here in Exodus 1? Look at Exodus 1, 5. All the descendants of Jacob, so you have Abraham, then you have Isaac, then we come to Jacob, All the descendants of Jacob, everyone in his family, were 70 persons. 70. You remember what the promises were? A great nation, not a tiny nation, not what we would call a micro-nation. A great nation. Father of a multitude of nations and exceedingly fruitful. More offspring than the stars in the sky. And yet here we are in Exodus 1-5, and Jacob's family totals the number of roughly the people sitting in this section of the sanctuary. 
That's the whole family. And God's been saying for years, you're going to have kids. You're going to have more kids in the stars in the sky. You're going to be exceedingly fruitful. You're going to be this great nation, the father of a multitude of nations. And then you just look across the sanctuary at these folks over here and you say, you know, there's some impressive people sitting in this section this morning. But 70 folks. I can count to 70. I can't count the stars in the sky, but I can count to 70. It's not all that impressive. You may wrestle with that a little bit, and you may say, I don't see how those promises really fit together. You say God is a promise-keeping God, 70 people. It's not all that impressive. How do you say that God is keeping his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Well, I'll say a couple of things. First, I'll say just remember that two generations earlier, the whole thing started not with the Brady Bunch or not with the Waltons. It started with Abraham and his wife, and they were old, past the point of having children, never in their life able to have children. That's who God started with. Not this big family with all these kids running around, but an old man with an old wife with no kids. That's where we started. And the fact that you end up with 70 from that is in and of itself a miracle. And if 70 isn't all that impressive, just hang on. Because the story gets better. And we're going to talk about how the story gets better this morning as we get into the book of Revelation and we take a peek at the end. So in the book of Genesis, we find God making these promises to Abraham. He keeps his promises because he always keeps his promises. And this is on your outline. God is able to always keep his promise because he is sovereign. God is able to keep his promise every time without fail because he is sovereign. Now, confession. When I put the outline together this week, I just had this urge. It was almost irresistible, but I, I resisted. I had this urge to keep adding adjectives to the word sovereign. Like I wanted to have you fill in, he's totally sovereign. He's completely sovereign. He's supremely sovereign. I wanted to sort of add one of these superlative words to make you understand he really is sovereign. But then I just stopped and I said, but that's kind of what sovereign means. Sovereign is kind of like perfect. If you say something is perfect, you don't need to say it's totally perfect. If it's perfect, it's perfect. Anything less than that is not perfection. Sovereignty means complete and total authority. The ability to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, without asking permission of anyone. That's what the word means. So we need to add an adverb to it. We don't need to sort of modify it and say, well, this is, this is how sovereign he is. He is sovereign. He has complete and he has total authority. And you say, where do you see that in Exodus 1? I see it in the fact that this family, Jacob's family, ends up moving from what we would call the promised land to Egypt. We're not going to look at all the passages, but just stop and ask yourself, how did that happen? Why did they end up in Egypt, and how was it that Joseph was already there? Do you remember the story from the last chunk of Genesis? The story starts off with a young man named Joseph who's a little bit of a twerp, if we're honest. And he's rubbing some stuff that God was doing in his life in his brother's face and sort of trying to make them feel insignificant. And so the brothers... Older brothers, bigger brothers, stronger brothers put their heads together and say, let's get rid of this guy. 
There's some guys coming along, some slave traders, and I'm collapsing the story down way, way small, but they say, here's an opportunity for us to sell him and get rid of him, and we can be done with this dreamer, they called him. All his dreams about how great he's going to be. So the brothers conspire together, and they sell their own flesh and blood into slavery. And he ends up in Egypt, and he works for a guy named Potiphar. It goes great for a while, then it all goes south. He finds himself in prison, and it all goes great for a while. Then he's called out to to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, and he does this for Pharaoh, and he gets promoted to second in the land of all the Egypt. And you can look at that, and you can say, how did Joseph get there in the first place? You could say his jerk brothers sold their jerk brother into slavery in Egypt. It was all a bunch of jerks. Or you could go back and listen to what the Bible says. And the Bible says in Genesis 45 that it wasn't the brothers who sent him, but it was God who sent him. Now look, the Bible doesn't let the brothers off the hook. They were guilty. They were responsible for what they did 100%. But when Joseph talks to him, he says, look, you didn't send me here. We all know that. God sent me here. You see it later in the book in chapter 50. Dad dies and the brothers are afraid that Joseph's going to take vengeance on him. And he says, you didn't send me here. God's the one that sent me here. God was in complete control of that. Are you guilty for being a bunch of knuckleheads? Yes. Are you guilty for selling me into slavery? A hundred percent. But God was in control of that. I didn't catch God off guard. You remember in that story, there was also a famine, right? Joseph was gone, and he was running the ag department of Egypt. But there also just happened to be a worldwide famine that God predicted. He gave Pharaoh these dreams, and he put Joseph in the exact right spot to interpret the dreams and to say, this is exactly what it means. It's coming. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. You better get ready for it. God predicted the whole thing. He was in control of Joseph ending up in Egypt. He was in control of this famine that drove Joseph's family to travel to Egypt. He was in control of all of it. The Bible word for that or the theology word for that is God is sovereign. None of the events that took place leading up to Joseph ending up here and the whole family moving, when you pick up the story and it says, these are the names that came to Egypt with Jacob. You just read between the lines and God was completely sovereign over every step they took. Every step in sending their brother as a slave and trying to get rid of him and the famine that forced them with their backs up against the wall. They had no other option but to go to Egypt. God is sovereign over all of it. He has complete control and authority. And the last thing I'm going to add on is this. And we're not going to see it in this passage, but we're going to see it throughout Exodus. And so I want you to be thinking about it. God keeps his promises for the sake of his own glory. He keeps the promises that he makes for the sake of his own glory. Look, as we go through Exodus, just about everything that God does, we're going to find it looping around and God saying, I'm doing this for my glory, for my name, for my reputation. This really doesn't have a whole lot to do with you. It has everything to do with me. That's a God-centered worldview painted throughout the book of Exodus. You and I go through life and we live in a man-centered worldview, a human-centered worldview where we think it all revolves around us and we want sermons that are about us and we want Sunday school lessons that are about us. Tell me how to do this. Tell me how to do that. And the Bible just doesn't answer those questions because the Bible, first and foremost, isn't about you or me. It's about God. 
And the reason God does everything he does in the book of Exodus is not because you or me or Moses or the people. It's for his own glory. So let me just mention a, a story from my life that I was reminded of this week. In uh, Growing up in Amarillo, every now and then Amarillo would have pretty decent bands come through. And uh, I don't know why this is the way it is. I don't know if it's still this way. But when I was growing up, if there was a good concert coming to Amarillo, it was always on a Thursday night. Thursday night was always concert night in Amarillo. And I had a couple of buddies in high school. And there was a band coming to town. And we put our heads together and we said, we've got to go to this show. This is one of our favorite groups. We've got to go listen to them. And this was before, I just had to stop and think about this this week. This was before you got online to buy tickets for things. This is back when the box office literally said, get in line at such and such day, such and such time, and if you want a ticket, get a ticket. So there's a Civic Center in Amarillo, and that's the box office right out front. And they said, look, tickets go on sale. It was like a Thursday at 10 o'clock. And so I've got a group of buddies that want to go to the show, and somehow I draw, uh, draw the short straw, and I'm the guy that has to go down. Now, how funny is this? I could not tell you for the life of me who the band was. I thought about it all week. Who was it that we went to see? I have no idea. I do remember it was about 15 degrees and the wind was blowing about 50 miles an hour. And there I stood out on the sidewalk thinking, I got the worst friends ever. These guys, man, it was cold. And if that wasn't bad enough, check this out. I get up, I buy the tickets. We got good seats for the show. The plan was, I'll buy the tickets. You guys pay me back. So that evening, we all get together. This buddy says, yep, here's your ticket. Pay me back. And we're making the exchange. And one of my buddies says, hey, I don't need a ticket. What do you mean you don't need a ticket? I bought you a ticket. He says, well, I just don't need one. I'm like, you're not going? We've been excited about this for months, and they went on sale today. All of a sudden, you're backing out. And he says, well, I'm going to go with this girl. I don't, I'm not going with y'all. Somebody else got me a ticket. So I said, you're telling me I bought a ticket with my money on the promise that you were going to pay me back, and now you don't want it. Now I'm stuck with it. Now I got rid of it. But in that moment, I thought, you're a jerk. <laughs> you didn't keep your word. That wasn't the deal. The deal was I'll go down, buy the tickets, and then you pay me back. Sort of tells you what kind of friend he was, that he really never saw the big deal in it. He really wasn't bothered by it. Huh? Ah, I don't need a ticket. You think about people who have done something similar to you, and I know that's just a silly example. But I would tell you, even in that silly example, I never looked at that friend again the same. You gave me your word that this is what the plan was. And then after I put myself out there, you back out on the plan. And I know it's a silly example. You can think of other examples in your life that probably break your heart way more than being stuck with an extra ticket. And you know that when that happens, you never look at that person the same. They can apologize. You can fix the relationship. All that stuff is great. Kumbaya, let's hug and make up. But once somebody does that and they don't keep their word, you always sort of have that floating around in the back of your mind. You know, there was that one time this person told me they were going to do this, and they didn't come through. And what God says in the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and all the way throughout the Bible is, 
I'm going to keep my promises because I don't want my reputation to be soiled. It really doesn't have anything to do with you. You're not even worth me keeping my promises. But I'm going to keep them for my own glory, for my own reputation, for the sake of my own name. Because I don't want anybody to know me as the God who doesn't keep his promises or even worse, the God who can't keep his promises. And the picture you see in the Exodus is God making promises to his people, starting with Abraham, up through Isaac, up through Jacob, up through Joseph and all his brothers. God's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to keep my word. I'm able to keep my word because I'm sovereign, totally sovereign, completely sovereign, over-the-top sovereign. But I'm going to do it because I want the glory, and I want people to know how great I am. Let's think about application, and we'll wrap this up. How do we apply these truths? How do we take them from our head and try to drive them down into our heart? A few thoughts. Number one, remember that even when the kingdom of God seems insignificant, God is at work for his glory. Even when the kingdom seems insignificant, God is at work for his glory. Look, believe me, when these 70 starving Hebrew shepherds made their way into Egypt, there was nothing impressive about it. Egypt didn't stop and say, oh, look at these folks. We're now blessed with the Hebrews to be here. We've been waiting for the Hebrews to show up. They were a bunch of nobodies on the verge of starvation. Yeah, Joseph was glad to have his family there, and you read in Genesis, Pharaoh was somewhat amused to have these Hebrews show up, but there was only 70 of them. They're on the verge of starvation. It wasn't all that impressive. God used them, though, right? What started as a drop in the bucket turned into something phenomenal. You may think about your life in your areas of influence, and you may feel like it's a drop in the bucket. You may think, I don't have the influence that so-and-so has. I don't, I don't know the people or have the connections that that person has. I haven't been blessed with opportunities the way that person has. I just sort of seem like a nobody doing nothing. And I would just remind you, God in this story starts off with 70 nobodies who could do nothing for him. And through his blessing accomplishes something unbelievably remarkable. You may say, well, you know, I'm just a greeter at the church. Or I just teach Awana on Wednesday nights. I help the kids learn the verses. Anyone can do that. Or, you know, I, you know the stuff I, my contribution, I don't have a lot of money. So my tithe is not all that big. I just, I, I don't really feel like, I feel like a drop in the bucket. And what you see in the book of Exodus is God can do great things with drops. He can do amazing things with things that seem insignificant. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, I know that the angel showed up, but if you remember, there was really no one out there when the angel showed up but a bunch of shepherds. No one took notice. There was a little bit of paranoia about a prophecy about a child to be born. We read about that in, in reading about Herod, but really it wasn't that big a deal. It seemed very insignificant. When that baby grew up, the son of a carpenter, 
and was crucified on a cross outside of Jerusalem 30 years later. I know that the sun got dark in the midday, and I know there was an earthquake, which was a bit unusual, but let's be honest, it, just, it was business as usual for the Romans. If they'd killed one, they'd killed a million. It was just sort of another day. Jesus himself said, listen, the kingdom is like the smallest of seeds. It's like a mustard seed, and you plant it in your garden, and it seems so tiny and insignificant, and you can't imagine anything great's going to come from it, but you put it in the ground, and God waters it, and the sun comes out, and it grows, and it becomes one of the biggest plants in the whole garden. That's what the kingdom's like. It starts small. God uses small things. Here's a glimpse of the end, Revelation chapter 7. John sees this glimpse of heaven, and he says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages. When you read that verse, your mind ought to go all the way back to Abraham. And what did God promise Abraham? You're going to be a great nation. There will be more of you than the stars in the sky. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. You will be exceedingly fruitful. You don't see it yet in Exodus 1, but it's coming. And if you just hang on for the end of the story, this is where we end up. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If you're not all that impressed with Exodus 1, and the fulfillment of this promise, and you're not all that impressed with Jesus and talking about mustard seeds, just hang on. Because one day it's going to be incredibly impressive. A multitude that no one can number from every tribe and nation before the throne praising God. Why? Because he makes promises to his people and he keeps promises to his people. Remember that when the kingdom seems insignificant, God is at work for his glory. Secondly, remember that as a child of God, my identity is rooted in God's redemptive promises. Who you are, your identity is rooted in God's redemptive promises. And I see that in how Moses starts the book off. He starts off with the word and, connecting us back and driving us back to all the promises that God made to Abraham. He gives us this mini genealogy of Jacob and his sons and all the people who moved down to Egypt. And I just want you to think for a second. Who was Moses writing this for? I know sometimes we open our Bibles and we feel like Moses had us in mind when he wrote it. And I hate to break it to you, he didn't. He wasn't thinking about you or me. Moses finds himself outside of Egypt with this horde of people who just left with him. And he says, we've got to write this down. We've got to remember this. These people need to know who they are and where they came from. And here's one of the most fascinating details we'll come across in the book of Exodus. When the people left the night after the Passover, and they find themselves marching out of Egypt, this massive horde, we read this little interesting verse that says it was a mixed multitude. Meaning, you had all the Hebrews walking out of Egypt, and you had a bunch of Egyptians that said, that's it, we're out. 
We've seen the plagues. We've experienced the Passover. We're leaving with these people. We're siding with the slaves over Pharaoh himself. And you've got this mixed company of people marching up out of Egypt. And Moses is starting in chapter 1, right off the bat, reminding them, let me just remind you who you are and where you come from. You're not just Israelites. You're not just Egyptians. We don't need a DNA test to tell who's in and who's out. Your identity is rooted in God's redemptive promises, promises he gave to Abraham, passed to Isaac, passed to Jacob, promised to us, and we've experienced them in the Exodus. Our identity is not rooted in who your parents were, your family tree, or your DNA. Your identity is rooted in who God says you are. When he says, I am taking a people to be my people from the midst of Egypt. They will be my people and I will be their God. You may sit in the room this morning and say, my past is unbelievably bad. You may say, the things that I have done in my past define who I am today. Or you may sit in the room this morning and say, hey, I just got my ancestry DNA kit online and I found out I'm such and such percent this and such and such percent that and now I know who I am. I have a sense of my identity. And the Bible is screaming at you from the Old Testament all the way to the New, from Exodus all the way to Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians saying, your identity is not in who you used to be. It's not in what you've done. It's not in what your ancestry DNA kit says. It's in the redemptive promises of God, promises that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul tells the Galatians, look, in Jesus, there's neither Greek nor Jew nor slave nor free nor male or female. We're all sons of God in Jesus Christ. This is where you find your identity, in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. So you remind yourself, my identity as a child of God, it's not based on on where I come from. It's not based on what I've done. It's not based on my ethnicity. It's based on who God says I am in Christ. The last idea is this. Regardless of your circumstances, remember that God has a good plan that will come to pass. A good plan that will come to pass. I just want to go way back into the book of Genesis one more time, and I want you to look at this passage. This is God speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15. It says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, And they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, Abram, you'll go to your fathers in peace, you'll be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That little conversation between God and Abram happened way before anyone ever dreamed of going down to Egypt. It happened way before the knucklehead brothers sold their knucklehead baby brother into slavery. It happened way before a famine plagued the entire world and forced this family to go to the one place where they would be able to eat. 
That conversation happened way before any Hebrews were enslaved. It happened way before Moses was sent to bring the people out. It happened way before the plagues. It happened way before the parting of the Red Sea. It happened way before all of it. And God is saying way from the very beginning, I have a plan, and because I'm sovereign and I always keep my promises, this is what we're going to do. And I want you to think about this. All these people in Abram's family, all these people that led to a 70, that then led to a a multitude, they were fruitful and they multiplied, chapter 1 tells us. None of these people got to vote where they fell in the plan. God's not up in heaven saying, where would you like to be born? Would you like to be born a slave? Would you like to be born as one of the ones who were starving to death and had to travel to Egypt? Would you like to be born as one of the ones who got to see the plagues and walk out in the exodus? Maybe you'd like to be one of the ones who I'm going to kill in the wilderness as soon as I bring you out. There's no voting. It's just God's plan. And God puts the right people in the right places at the right time and His plan comes about. It's the same with you and I. We don't get a vote about when we're born, where we're born, the circumstances we find ourselves in. It's not our job to moan or grumble or complain about where God has us at any particular moment. We'll see the people of Israel do plenty of that. And my guess is most of us do plenty of that. Our job is to say God has a plan. He told it to Abram right from the very beginning. You're going in to a land that's not yours. You're going to be servants there, and then I'm going to bring you out with great possessions. It's going to be fantastic. You and I stand on this side of that part of the plan, but we still look forward to the book of Revelation, right? The verse we read earlier from chapter 7 that says there's going to be a great multitude from every tribe and nation and language and tongue and family, and they're going to be there together praising the Lord. We don't get a vote in between now and then about where we fall. That's not our job. Our job is to say, this is where I'm at. This is where God has put me. Where do I fit into the plan? I can trust that God, who is completely sovereign, has not put me in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. He has me exactly where he wants me. What does he want to do through me? Not for my sake, but for his glory. Because everything that he does is for his name and for his reputation. It's a challenge for you and the challenge for me as we walk away from this introductory paragraph is to say, do I trust God in his power and his goodness and his sovereignty? Do I trust him, yes or no? Do I trust that he will keep the promises that he's made to his people? Do I trust in his desire to uphold his own name and reputation and glory? And if so, where do I fall into his plan? And how does he want to use me? I'm going to ask you to bow and let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word. We believe that it's true. We believe that it's powerful. Father, we look back on this ancient, ancient story and we stand amazed at the things that you have promised your people and the things that you have delivered on for your people. Father, we pray that as we begin this series in the book of Exodus, that we would read the story to learn more about you, that you would be our focus. 
Father, we trust you, your power, your wisdom, your goodness, your timing. Father, we pray that we would be people who rest in the promises you've made, trusting that you always keep your promise. Father, we pray that we would be people who care about what you care about, and that's your name and your glory and your reputation. Father, be honored as we take a moment to sing and to reflect on who you are and how you are worthy of our worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to